Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancha Romani on October 23rd with Dr. David Katz, a medical doctor, founder of Diet ID, and the co-author with Mark Bittman of How to Eat. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mansharamani.com. Okay, so thanks everyone for joining. Uh, I am thrilled this week to have Dr. David Katz uh, join me for this discussion of the Think for Yourself webinar series. Uh, David Katz is uh, not only the author, co-author with Mark Bittman of this book that I have a picture of for you to see here, uh, which I have also read and have nothing but positive things to say about. Um, but he's also uh, a very accomplished uh, doctor and academic, I would say, right? So he's found uh, former president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Uh, he's the founder of the True Health Initiative. He's been involved uh, in academic environments as well, uh, where he was the founding director of Yale's uh, Griffin Prevention Research Center. Um, and he's the co-founder and, and CEO of Diet ID, uh, which he'll tell us more about uh, here in time. So again, I'm absolutely thrilled to have him uh, and we will uh, enjoy uh, this conversation with him about a wide ranging set of topics from how to eat to how do we think about research in the domain of nutrition and healthcare, wellness, maybe even touch on COVID. Um, but a quick advertisement for next week. Uh, next week, I'll be uh, having a discussion with uh, Roger Martin. Roger is uh, most recently the author of When More Is Not Better, uh, which is a little bit about our quest for efficiency in all walks of life and whether that's necessarily a good thing, whether the whole capitalist system is leaving too many people behind. So um, should be a, a really interesting discussion. He was listed by Thinkers 50 as the number one most influential management scholar on the planet. So uh, Roger's a, a really thoughtful academic business uh, advisor, et cetera. So we'll uh, talk with him next week. And then I have three replays from the fall season available. The first, of course, was last week we had Susan Helms, uh, General Helms, retired three-star Air Force general, former commander of, of uh, Space Force, effectively, uh, before it existed. And then also uh, a NASA astronaut who spent who did five space shuttle trips and spent over 211 days in space. So uh, that was a really interesting conversation for those that missed it, uh, the replay is available. We had uh, Dean uh, Karana before, uh, Rakesh Karana was Dean, is, excuse me, is Dean of Harvard College and talking about education in the time of COVID, mental health considerations, taking care of students, taking care of the, uh, the topics of interest, making sure students are prepared for the future, um, navigating uncertainty in education, uh, but also uh, liberal arts versus skills-based education and, and what may serve society better in the long run. So uh, a really interesting conversation. I encourage you, any that missed it, to, to go back and see that. And then, of course, we uh, started this fall uh, series with Annie Duke, who was a professional poker player, uh, since reformed, uh, now writing about cognitive uh, psychology, specifically decision making and how biases come into play. 
Her most recent book just released last week was uh, How to Decide. Uh, her prior book was Thinking in Bets. And that was a really interesting conversation because we touched on everything about how do you play better poker uh, through how do you make big decisions versus uh, sort of less big decisions. So uh, that's the series. And again, looking forward next week to having Roger. Um, let me stop the share here so you can all see Dr. Katz a little bit. There we go. Um, so Dr. Katz, thank you for joining me. Vikram, thanks for putting me in such rarefied company. Fascinating series of conversations. Well, it is, it's interesting because one of the things, as I told you in a prior conversation, uh, what I've tried to do here is bring in multiple disciplines, multiple lenses, multiple walks of life. Um, and, and, and it's actually an interesting place to begin our conversation because um, within the domain of medicine, it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that nutrition doesn't get the status it can or should deserve in medical education, et cetera. So why is that? Let's, let's start there. And then, you know, we can go into a whole bunch of different directions, but uh, given the sort of noting that you have here of the different perspectives that I so deeply value yeah. uh, is critical. Why is nutrition a perspective that doesn't get the sort of higher, the status that I think deserves in medicine? So that, that one question really does open up a doorway to almost limitless discussion. When I was president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, there were, there were a couple of signature contributions I made. One was to found the True Health Initiative, which we'll talk about, to demonstrate that science, sense, and global expert consensus really did come together. They really were confluent with regard to optimal diet. But the other issue that I emphasized was the distinction between lifestyle in medicine and lifestyle as medicine. And, and what I mean is you look at, for example, the blue zones described for us all by Dan Buettner, National Geographic fellow. So those are the five places around the world where people most routinely live to be 100, don't get chronic disease and die peacefully in their sleep at the age of 102. So they live long, they prosper with vitality, they go gentle into that good night is a consummation devoutly to be wished. We should all be so lucky. So they are Ikaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And who knows, maybe there are other populations where people live to be a hundred, but Dan hasn't found them yet. He will eventually. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, you know, they do not attribute a you know, long life and a bounty of vitality in the blue zones to expert clinical counseling. It's, it's not their swell doctors. It's not clinical, it's cultural. And so, uh, you know, I emphasize to my clinical colleagues, and interestingly, uh, as we have this conversation, Vikram, this evening is the opening of Lifestyle Medicine 2020. It's our annual conference. It's virtual because of COVID and I'm doing opening remarks. So it's good timing to be talking about this. So, you know, back in the old days when I was president, I said, there really is a distinction between what clinics can do and what culture has to do. And one of the reasons medicine has not done more with nutrition and to be clear, so you have one of my books there for us to talk about, but here's another. This yeah. is the third edition of my nutrition textbook for health professionals. The reason it's sitting on my desk right now is because we're writing the fourth edition. Yeah. And by the way, everybody listening, if you get the opportunity to write a textbook, say no, it's like going to jail. It's the worst thing ever, absolutely horrible. Writing a book is bad enough. Writing a textbook is off the charts, horrible. So anyway, I've spent my whole career trying to get more attention to nutrition and medicine and absolutely feel that should be the case. And that invites us to talk about diet ID and we'll come to that in, in the fullness of time. 
But where lifestyle is the best medicine, where optimal diet is the best medicine, the spoon that helps the medicine go down, Lord knows it's not a spoonful of sugar. We get too many of those as is. The big spoon is culture, not clinics. It doesn't really make sense to expect clinics to fix what culture is in the business of breaking. And our culture is in the business of breaking nutrition. America runs on Dunkin', Coke and Pepsi are the national hydration beverages. We actively peddle multicolored marshmallows as part of a child's complete breakfast. You told me you have a nine and 14 year old. I, I don't know if they eat Lucky Charms or not, but you know, if they're like most nine and 14 year olds, you do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, most people in this country just sort of blithely accept that multicolored marshmallows are part of a complete breakfast. Yeah. They're the horrendous part of a complete breakfast. They don't eat that in the blue zones. So I think one of the reasons that medicine has historically eschewed nutrition is the recognition that it really is a cultural enterprise. Another is physicians really don't like stuff they can't fix. It, you know, we are fixers. That's what we go into medicine because we want to fix broken stuff. Well, fixing broken nutrition when our culture invests so massively to keep it broken is nearly impossible. So it's a very frustrating enterprise for doctor and patient alike and frustrating enterprises tend to be abandoned. And then finally, there's just the history of conventional medicine. So the way we teach medicine is rooted in something called the Flexner Report, developed in 1920. So it's 100 years old, and it's basically what reimagined medical education to include anatomy and physiology and histology. So it was you know, the foundational underpinnings of a modern medical education, but it's no longer modern. Yeah. We need a, you know, in, in the digital 21st century world, we need a totally different approach. And we're starting to see early indications of it. So for example, nutrition, which used to just be subsumed within nutritional biochemistry, has a new home. Culinary medicine, where medical students are actually being taught how to cook. So that the professor is a chef, you know, yeah. ra rather than expert in biochemistry. They're learning how to, how to cook delicious, nutritious meals. And then they get the recipe. And the idea is don't tell your patient about the biochemical pathways of B vitamins. Tell your patient, even I can make this. It's delicious, it's easy, it's inexpensive, and it's really good for you. You can make it too. That changes the conversation. So there's hope. Yeah, it's interesting because the, uh, the, the sense I have of modern medicine may be inaccurate, may not be complete, may not be fair, actually, is that it really is a sort of name it, blame it, tame it game. Right, so we get this collection of symptoms. So let's start with symptoms, which, by the way, as we did you just come up with that, or you had that one ready to go? <laughs> well, so I actually mentioned a little bit of this in my book. <laughs> okay, uh, but like it's really the is starting with symptoms, and then working backwards. Where you know, as as someone who's done some training and research methodology during my PhD program and subsequently. It almost as if you're selecting on the dependent variable, if I sort of boil it down into, into sort of research speak. Right. Uh, it seems backwards, right? Which is why should we start with symptoms? Shouldn't we understand what causes them rather than, than sort of cover them up? Um, and, and that gets to sort of a wellness orientation, lifestyle medicine, cultural sort of thinking holistically, uh, rather than a prescriptive solution band-aid sort of version of medicine. Am I wrong they're, they're, to characterize modern medicine this way? No, no, that, that's definitely the orientation, but they're not mutually exclusive. So I had an interesting experience a few years back, Vikram. I was, I was due to give the keynote address yeah. at Harvard at a lifestyle medicine conference. Yeah. 
And, you know, it was going to do what I usually do, which was highlight the fact that if we get lifestyle right, if we eat optimally or physically active, avoid toxins like tobacco and excess alcohol, get enough sleep, are not stressed out and cultivate strong social connections, feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, love, the six cylinder engine of lifestyle is medicine. If we get that right, we fire on all six. We can add years to life, life to years. Uh, we can eliminate 80% of all chronic disease and premature death. I, I was going to give that talk and cite the evidence. Yeah. And instead, I was in a hospital bed. I was in a hospital bed with anaplasmosis because uh, I have dogs like this one on the chair yep. behind me. That's Barley, yep. my golden doodle. All right. uh, and I have a horse, a troubadour, and I'm out in the woods hiking and riding as often as I can be. And occasionally, uh, I guess a tick gets on me and uh, periodically they managed to bite me without me noticing. So I had anaplasmosis, a tick-borne illness and uh, was horribly sick, uh, you know, just, just absolutely crushing headaches and it, it was dreadful. So I wound up in the hospital for a few days to get IV antibiotics. At the time, I was supposed to give a talk on lifestyle medicine. So I gave a very different talk from my hospital bed hooked up to an IV via Skype. Hmm. and said, lifestyle is generally the best medicine, but you know what? Sometimes medicine's good medicine too. So when you've got anaplasmosis, you want antibiotics. So I think one of the mistakes we make you know, is to think either or. We have a really fairly good, and, and I'll, I'll say fairly good because when it's great, it's amazing, but it also can be pretty dreadful at times, but we have a fairly good disease care system. Yep. We have a completely deficient health care system. And what you're referring to really is the healthcare part of the healthcare system, right? We call it healthcare. It's not. It doesn't care for health. It doesn't nurture vitality. We're really dreadful at propagating health at its origins and lifestyle. We wait for things to go wrong. And then, as you say, you know, we, we, we what is it? We name it, blame it, tame it. There you, know, you we go. <laughs> Band-aids to it. So, you know, it's, it's ex post facto medicine. It's after you're sick, come see me. And we really do need in modern culture, a healthcare system. We, we, we shouldn't, you know, if, if culture were taking care of things like in the blue zones, then yeah. culture is your healthcare system. Everyone is active. It's normal to eat optimally. Only real food is available. There's no such thing as junk masquerading as food. Sure. There isn't rampant addiction. People aren't abusing substances. Social connections are strong and prioritized and on and on it goes. But in our culture, all of that is broken and we need a healthcare fix and, and that requires a system we don't have. So the medical system as a disease care fit system, okay, disease is when something goes wrong. And so you do want to characterize what's gone wrong. Those are the symptoms and signs and figure out, you know, what do you blame? What's the pathology and how do you taint it? What is the appropriate remedy? That, that, that's, you know, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that when reacting to disease. What's fundamentally wrong is to call that a healthcare system and do so little to actually propagate health and vitality. And that's where the greater value proposition lies because frankly, and, and this has been the motivation of my entire career, 80% of all, all chronic disease, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, the, the great burden of blight in modern epidemiology is yeah. preventable. And we've known how to prevent it for well over a quarter century and have done very little with that knowledge. Knowledge is not power if you don't use it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think the, the distinction between sort of acute medical conditions and, and chronic conditions, I think, is a really profound one that you could almost imagine a 
bifurcated medical system, <laughs> right? One that, okay, they're, they're clinics. The clinics solve problems. There's a problem. You got bit by a tick and developed a tick-borne disease. Uh, someone breaks a leg. They, you know, see when you break a leg, you want an orthopedic person to know what they're doing to fix it, right? I right. don't want to find some generalist who's telling me, okay, your culture is you should just sort of lift your leg and have some, you know, chrysanthemum tea or something to fix That's it. That's right. That's right. Want- Yoga, meditation, and chrysanthemum tea, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, what I want. I want a doctor who knows how to fix it. Yeah, you need a splint. Absolutely. Yep. No, I totally agree. So, so I think, but that's, that's really largely neglected. And, you know, in in general, we are so polarized, so divided. Uh, There's such a rush to judgment. So I have perceived in my camp, in the lifestyle medicine camp, this percolating current that sort of repudiates conventional medicine. And I'm thinking, I I don't feel that way. You know, we have massively fewer strokes now than we did decades ago because of tremendous advances in antihypertensives. My father's a cardiologist in the early going of his career. You know, when people are having heart attacks, the best he could do is hold their hand and give them aspirin and hope for the best. And, you know, all the damage to the heart was done. Yeah. Uh, many of them died. So it was amazing because, you know, he's a cardiologist. He's the, the specialist. And that was the best he could do. In the early going of my career, uh, you know, I was paying the bills working in the ER. And just as an ER doc, I was doing stuff. My father, as a special, now of course, you know, by this time in his career, he was doing the same. But just comparing my early career to her, his early career, he was holding their hand. I was, I was using thrombolytic agents. I was, you know, essentially that's roto rooter for the coronary arteries. We were dissolving the clots while the heart attack was in the ER, while the heart attack was occurring and preventing damage to the heart. Now, of course, it's gone well beyond that, and it's routinely balloon angioplasty. But you know, the the, the point is that the advances in modern medicine really are quite amazing. And when you use them optimally, the good they can do is incredible. And I think we should all celebrate that and respect that, but it's not a substitute for taking good care of ourselves. And many fewer of us would need to be beneficiaries of the modern medical advances if we just stayed healthy in the first place. And and that's what our culture largely ignores. So how much of this is just about money? I mean, let's, let's sort of address a big white elephant in the room here, which is insurance will pay for me to go get treatments for things that have gone wrong. They're not going to go help diagnose food sensitivities or, you know, maybe they will in a case of food sensitivities, but, you know, a wellness orientation uh, also requires some potential expenditures for people. Maybe it's in the form of a better diet. It's more expensive groceries. It's more fresh foods rather than processed, et cetera. Uh, But the money's not there for uh, the big businesses, if you will, right? I mean, how many I, yeah, I, Apple companies are there or, you know, versus- Well, well, well so it's more complicated. So, you know, in a sense, I agree with you. There are definitely pernicious incentives in third-party coverage of disease-related treatments and general neglect, although this is changing, we're seeing more and more behavioral economics encouraging behavior to sure. treat risk factors, reduce the risk for chronic disease. But you know, in general, pernicious incentives that, that encourage you to get sick and get treated. So you know, your coronary bypass will be paid for, that cabbage, cabbage you wanna buy in the supermarket, not so much, right? But again, we're, we're seeing changes there. I agree with you that money is a huge part of the problem. And in my prior book, so we're going to talk about how to eat, but in my prior book, The Truth About Food, which was sort of my magnum opus, it's, you know, if you need to hold open a door on a windy day, use The Truth About Food. It's 750 pages. 
Um, I think I have a copy of that one here. So it's, yeah. it's a big book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in this one, uh, I, I talk all about the fact that big food makes a fortune peddling junk, you know, extremely inexpensive, mass-produced frankenfood, um, which is responsible for epidemics of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and all the rest, and, and, you know, massive profit for big food. And then the resulting chronic disease generates massive profit for big pharma, which winds up treating a, you know, a legion of disease we never needed to get in the first place. So, you know, I don't, I, I think the money available to all of us to treat disease once we get it is the tip of the iceberg. Cause it, you know, it's not as if people, you know because your dialysis will be covered don't care whether or not they fry their kidneys. You know, it's not the fact that, you know if, if you have a stroke you'll your care in the, you know neurological ICU will be covered doesn't make people blase about having strokes, right? Nobody wants to get sick. So those are pernicious incentives, but they exert a mild influence. The, the, the massive influence, I think, reverberates through our culture, and, and that is the huge pernicious influence of profit related to the propagation of chronic disease. And, you know, I, again, I, I have this morbid fantasy about the, the, the prototypical CEO of big food and the prototypical CEO of big pharma meeting in a you know bar, boardroom filled with cigar smoke, shaking hands and grinning at one another. Okay, you know, we're going to get rich making people fat and sick. You'll get rich selling them drugs to treat all the harms that, that our products cause. And we can both laugh about it all the way to the bank. That's the reality. Uh, and, and that needs to change. And that's tragic. And I, you know, I think the way that changes is conversations like this, sure. where we drag it out of the shadows and the cigar smoke and help people understand that is what's going on here. Yeah. So my guess is the advice you'd give me when going into a grocery store, and then we'll get to how I should eat. But when I go into a grocery store that I should stick to the perimeter. Yes, but that's, that's too simplistic. Uh, as much as you can, yes. And, and I do eat that way yeah. substantially. But, you know, unless you're Yule Gibbons, you remember Yule Gibbons? You know, yeah, right. So it's, a, it's an ancient name. I, I think the new generation has forgotten, but, you know, famously, you know, survived eating tree bark and gravel or something, but, you know, sort of famous for, for only eating stuff found in nature. Yeah. Um, before Michael Pollan, we had Yule Gibbons. Yeah. There you go. Um, but I know Michael and, and Michael eats stuff that comes in bags, boxes, bottles, jars and cans, as do I, you know, it's really hard to avoid. So, you know, if you buy even the best breakfast cereal, it comes in a box. If you buy steel cut oats, they come in a bag. You know, if you buy date or figs, they come in a container, you know, if you buy dried lentils, they come in a bag and on and on it goes. So, so no, it's, it's unrealistic to think that, you know, you're just going to shop the produce aisle. So we really need food label literacy so people understand how to find the more nutritious options in every other aisle as well. Um, we need to avoid being few food Puritans, you know, where if, if you ever dare buy anything that comes in a container, you know, you, 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 you get a scarlet letter, you know, on, on your sweatshirt or some damn thing. Um, so yes, the, the, the advice starts there, but I think we can go well beyond that. And, and in fact, if I may offer a resource to, to people listening in, uh, all of the Katz family greatest hits are readily available to everybody else on my wife's recipe site. So this is freely accessible to all, quizinicity.com. Uh, Catherine's French, amazing cook, 
Uh, we're substantially, but not ardently vegan. The recipes shifted over the years more and more in that direction, more because of concerns about ethics and the environment than anything else. Okay. But from the you know past eras, you'll find poultry and, and seafood uh, and, and and you know wide array of dishes and and even to this day, you know she's French, so there is there, there is some dairy in the mix. Um, but lots of vegan recipes, fantastic cooking, um, family friendly, not expensive, not fancy, but um, so good. And um, and videos there to show you how to make stuff. And so quizonicity.com, help yourselves. Excellent. No, that's great. And I will send that out in the uh, link to the recording. I'll mention it as well. So um, it, it is fascinating. Since you brought up the topic of vegan and dairy, et cetera, uh, I, I want to go in that direction for a minute since yeah. and by the way, a lot of these topics are in the book. Uh, yeah, no, they're all in the book for sure. Uh, but how should I think about meat? How do I think about the, I don't even know what you call it, the, 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 the quote unquote meat, the sort yeah. of beyond meat, the impossible sure. meat, the, yeah. and, you know, stuff that may even be lab grown meat. I, the, you can see, and I feel the visceral contradiction that exists. Oh, I'm being healthier by having plant-based. But when you look at those ingredients, those are highly processed, really filled with salt and all sorts of other things. Right. Um, how does one make sense of that? All right, so, so let's start with the, the first question you asked, how does one think about meat? And, and I would recommend that we think in particular about meat, but arguably we think about everything to do with nutrition yeah. by looking at it through three lenses, not just one. So one lens is what will this do directly to my health? And, yeah. and clearly that matters and we'll talk more about that. The second lens is how will this impact the care and treatment of our fellow creatures? Because, you know, I, I think uh, most people are decent. Most people are kind. Yeah. Most people don't want cruelty on the menu. And the simple fact is that to feed 8 billion hungry homo sapiens meat results in incalculable abuse and cruelty. It just does. Factory farming is dreadful. And, you know, overwhelming evidence that, that pigs, for example, are as or more intelligent than the family dog. Hmm. You know, they have the full range of emotion. So, you know, we've got these animals that we love and that are members of our family and then others are on our dinner plates. I've always had an issue with that. Um, so I, I think that's the second lens. You know, does, does this reflect our humanity as it should, our decency? And then the third, and you could argue this is the most important, is environmental impact. Um, environmental impact. The, the footprint of our diets with regard to water utilization, land use, impacts on air, incursions into fragile ecosystems, impact on biodiversity and greenhouse gas emissions, climate change. Massive, massive influence there. So how do you think about meat? I think about it through those three lenses. And through the first, direct impact on human health. Um, yeah, there are probably kinds of meat we could eat that would be fine, most, most likely game. Uh, you know, the notion that we're adapted to eat meat. Yeah, we're omnivorous, but our Stone Age ancestors had to catch the meat they ate. It was wild animals. Yep. Massively, massively different from the composition of the flesh of domestic animals. Just, just a quick, for instance, average cut of steak from uh, modern beef cattle, 35% of the calories come from fat, much of it saturated. Compare that to antelope, thought to be much more like the kind of meat our Stone Age ancestors ate when they hunted successfully. 7% of the calories come from fat, one fifth as much. Almost none of it's saturated, much of it omega-3, which is absent from uh, modern beef cattle. 
radically different. So different proteins, different fat, you, you, can, you can't just lump it all under the rubric meat and pretend it's the same. The other more important thing though, is that if you eat more meat, you're eating less plants. And overwhelmingly the evidence is clear that the more plants you eat, the better off you are. And so if you get your protein from beans and lentils instead of meat, yeah. you're getting all the amino acids you need, but you're also getting antioxidants and loads of fiber and micronutrients and all sorts of stuff that meat is not providing. Generally, the more you move in a direction of whole foods, plant predominance, the better the quality of your diet, the better the quality of your health. So that's just, that's just lens one. Lens two, we should all be eating less meat if we care about how we treat our fellow creatures. It would leave room for some meat in some diets, but it could eliminate factory farming, the, the mass production of meat, which is the mass torture of animals. I am opposed to that. And three, I think we all need to care about whether or not the planet sticks around for our children and grandchildren. And consequently, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And one of the most actionable steps in front of any one of us is to eat less meat. It actually can make a difference. And if we do that at scale, it can make a massive difference. So that's how we think about meat. In terms of these meat alternatives, I, I've had lengthy discussions with colleagues. Uh, Mark and I talk about it in the book. And yep. it's on different aspects of this, like Guidon Echelle at Harvard, who's an expert in the environmental footprint of foods. So meat alternatives beyond impossible, clear winner in two out of three categories. Better for our fellow creatures, kinder, gentler, check. Better for the environment, check. Better for human health, the jury's out. If you're replacing a McDonald's hamburger, so a highly processed hamburger with a highly processed non-meat burger, at worst, it's a lateral move, but you're probably better off. On the other hand, if you are replacing, you know, venison or even, you know, lean grass-fed beef, or perhaps more importantly, wild salmon with a Beyond or Impossible Burger, which is highly processed, you may very well be trading down in that category of direct human health effects. So sure. optimal would be, you know, don't eat highly processed plant-based burgers, eat yeah. less processed plant. My wife, by the way, on Quizinisti, awesome yeah. vegan burgers, best I've ever had. So you can, you can make your own. Um, but, but here's where I think there is a real role for those faux meats. Those are not for people who like eating plants. So I, I like eating plants. Yeah. I, the idea that my impossible burger will bleed does not appeal to me. I haven't eaten meat in 40 years. I don't want my meat. I don't want my, my meals to bleed. The value of those, it's a gateway drug for plant-based eating, right? So if, you, if you're a carnivore and you're not willing to give up the pleasure from meat, okay. Well, you know, it's like going from regular soda to diet soda. Is it great? No. Is it better? Yeah. And might it help you continue the journey? So you go from diet nope. soda, seltzer <laughs> to water, you know? Yeah. Same thing here. So I, I think the invitation to, you know, large populations of people who are carnivorously inclined to substitute something for meat and, and maybe continue the journey and move in the direction of actual plants, I think that's a really good service. So those of us willing to eat plants don't need Beyond Impossible, I'm not interested. Um, but those who are otherwise not willing to try plants, but are willing to try them if they bleed, okay, great, it's a start. Got it. Yeah. No, I just, I, I do find the, the, the seeming contradiction of, I want natural, I want natural, but here's my choice to go processed. It's sort of. There's no, a, a for, little... for sure. But actually, so Vikram, you're, you're, I think very rightly 
in that one domain. Orienting people to two axes. And, and so, again, my day job now is CEO of Diet ID, where, where we have the world's first fundamental innovation in dietary assessment in our lifetimes. And, and what we're channeling there is two things. Um, one is the Feropter. That's the device you use when you go to the eye doctor to see whether or not you need corrective lenses. You, you put your chin on a chin rest. You look at two images at a time. One's in focus. One is not. It's your job to say which is which. So you say B is in focus. And then they pull up two more images and say, how about now? And you say, now A is in focus. Mm -hmm. And then how about now? How about now? How about now? And 30 seconds later, they've got an exact match for your eyes and diopters. We've done that for diet. We mapped the nation's diets, stratified by type and quality, turned them into images, take five seconds to find out a little bit about your, your basic dietary pattern, show you two images on a smartphone screen and say, which of these looks more like stuff you eat? And you say B. We say, how about now? You say A. We say, how about now? 30 seconds to 60 seconds later, we've got your diet. Yeah. That's a major advance. The, the other thing we're channeling is Malcolm Gladwell his book link, right? You know how we're, we're humans are really good at pattern recognition. We're, we're really bad at uh, recollecting detail. Yeah. So, so we can capture the, the details of, of diet type. And importantly, we can quantify diet quality using an objective measure, the healthy eating index 2015, which correlates directly with all cause mortality and total chronic disease risk. So when we stratify diets by quality, we see movement along two axes, the, the two axes that, that you were just suggesting. So one is high quality diets, whether they're paleo or low carb or low fat or vegan or anything in between, high quality diets are low in processed food. They're much less processed. Yep. We did a webinar yesterday for Diet Idea about ultra processed food and had the inventor of the Nova scale, uh, Carlos okay. Montero with us among others, talking about this and how important it is. So High quality diets avoid highly processed foods. Yep. But the other thing is they move from animal food predominant to plant food predominant. So the best versions of every diet, and again, from low carb to low fat, from paleo to vegan, everything in between are low in highly processed foods and are rich in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. And you're right to unbundle those two. You can't assume that just because you're eating plants, you're doing well on the, the axis that's about processing, right? So, so, we, so we, have, you know, we have a whole column, 10 tiers of the vegan diet in our diet map. The bottom tier is vegan junk. You absolutely can eat vegan junk food. Sure. You shouldn't, but it's certainly possible to do that. Yeah, lucky charms, right? That kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Coca-Cola, <laughs> right. Coca-Cola, cotton candy diet. You know, hey, I'm vegan. Yeah. So actually, one of the things I want to come back to diet ID and where you want to go with it, but you did raise an interesting point, which was one of the key lessons I took from this book, uh, which I think is really, uh, I've read a lot on nutrition, I've read a lot on health, I've read a lot on these topics. Uh, and so I feel relatively well informed. One of the really, I thought, profound, albeit very simple uh, messages you conveyed, which is it's hard to describe something as good or bad unless you understand what it's replacing, right? So, you're, I mean, the, the fact that eggs for breakfast may be a lot better than that sugared cereal, but maybe not quite as good as oatmeal with berries. <laughs> and, and so the, yeah, so we, we call this instead of what? And, and all of my enlightened colleagues in nutrition yeah. and, and I'm really fortunate that, you know, a who's who in nutrition research teaching clinical care, you know, is my network, my, my friends and colleagues. 
everybody who's enlightened in that camp agrees that we should be asking instead of what all the time. It should be in every research paper. It should be in, in every media report. And it never is. Never. Because, because, well, it's much, you know, again, the, the, the mantra of the news media. Uh, and I, I worked on air for Good Morning America for two and a half years. I've done a lot of, of media work. Uh, so I know this well is, you know, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable. In other words, keep people rocking back and forth and perennially in doubt about what's true. Because if you ever know reliably what's true and it doesn't change, why would you watch me again tomorrow to get another installment? If I keep you confused for the rest of your life, then, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Annie Duke and poker, right? It's a little bit like poker. The idea that if I just play one more hand, I'm going to win. So, you know, I, if I tune in next week, I'll get the diet that really works. Yeah. That's yep. the game, right? So I'm going to just keep you unsteady and, ah, no, 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 maybe plants are bad for you after all. Read the plant paradox and tune in next week to find out what diet is right for Hollywood celebrities now because it may work for you. Yep. And, that, you know, that, that's a whole lot of nonsense. So, yeah, so instead of what is absolutely crucial and it is perennially neglected. So you want eggs to look good, you do a study where eggs are replacing donuts because after all America runs on Dunkin'. So, you know, are eggs good relative to donuts? Yeah, probably yes. Or Danish or, or you know, bagels and cream cheese. You know, lots of things you could have for breakfast where eggs would almost certainly be better for you. More nutrient rich, more satiating, lasting yep. fullness, um, higher quality nutrition. On the other hand, if, if eggs are displacing steel cut oats, mixed berries and raw walnuts, yeah. Uh, then that's actively good for you and eggs are not. So yeah. the instead of what question is absolutely crucial and, and it changes all of our thinking about the interpretation of nutritional epidemiology. One of the things that, that Mark and I wound up spending a, a, really an outsized portion of our time discussing and writing about was the science yeah. that produces our understanding of nutrition. Because you know Mark is not a scientist, I am. But, you know, Mark's a really intelligent guy and, and you know, a, a deep thinker and, and very knowledgeable about the whole food space. So, we, you know, we, we were discussing, you know, why is it that everybody's so confused about something that should be so simple? And we talked about how easy it is to run a randomized controlled trial that produces the outcome you want. Sure. So the randomized controlled tri trial has taken on almost a certain uh, tyrannical character because, you know, we, we, we hit one over the head with, you know, if you don't have RCTs, you can't make a claim. Well, absolutely untrue. In fact, you know, RCTs can do as much harm as good. It, they, they only answer the questions we ask. Yep. So, you know, if you, if you ask, are eggs good or bad, and you want eggs to be good, you just design a study where you're comparing them to something that's actively bad and eggs look better. Headlines, eggs are good for us now. Yep. And then if you oppose that because you're a philosophical vegan, you run a study where eggs are replacing something far better and then eggs are bad. And you can do the same with dairy. You can yep. even do the same with meat. Now, there's a point at which food is so bad, there's nothing worse. So, you know, it'd be very hard to replace, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages with much of anything that, that looks worse than they do. Although even there, I suppose if you were taking Coca-Cola out of the diet and putting trans fat in, <laughs> stick margarine, which you can no longer get, Crisco, uh, you know, it, it would be worse, right? So you know, there's almost always something worse, right? Take the donut out and put the, the <laughs> arms in. How do they have to figure that out? That's a lateral move as best I can tell. But, no, but um, actually, the point you're getting at, which I, I, I told you even before this conversation, that towards the back of the book, there's this section called questioning the answers. And I have to tell you, 
no disrespect to the first, uh, you know, 80% of the book, that part of the book was for me worth its weight in gold. It was exactly what you're talking about now, Dave, which is all these studies can get manipulated based on what they're asking and they don't surface the underlying question, which is instead of what, which is yeah. what you're getting so, at. Sim so simple, so, so obvious. Simple. Yeah, I, I thought it was fabulous. So, so tell, yeah. us more about, tell us more about Diet ID, okay. uh, where you're trying to go with it and where you think it, it, it what, what's your mission there? Okay. And, and, and thank you about the book. And, and, you know, again, it was, it's interesting and frustrating because, you know, I've done 18, 19 books and I don't think anybody should need to buy another book about nutrition. And, and Mark and I wrote a book about nutrition telling people you really shouldn't need to buy another book about nutrition. <laughs> yep. You know, I mean, it really just, you know, yeah. put all your books about nutrition in a backpack and go for a walk, you know, stop yeah. buying books. And I've actually had patients over there who keep it. What about this? What? Stop buying books. Just load them in your backpack, go for a hike. All will be well. Um, but people need to hear that. I mean, we really need the reality check. Uh, so thank you. Um, so diet ID is on a mission to make diet a vital sign. Diet is the single leading predictor variable for all cause mortality in the United States and much of the modern world today. Let me repeat that because you know it, it, it's easy to underestimate how significant that statement is. Diet quality is the single leading predictor variable for all-cause mortality in the United States today. So it's it has a bigger influence than tobacco use. It has a bigger influence than any other single behavior. Diet. So we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic as we record this. And, and tragically, over 200,000 Americans have lost their lives to the pandemic. 500,000 Americans die prematurely from poor diet quality in the United States every year. And, and it's because of junk impersonating food and, and the idea that our culture is okay conflating the two. Uh, so the, the influence is massive. Well, there's, a, there's an expression, and, and it's interesting, Vikram, because you, your experience basically spans business and public health. And so you may appreciate this from, from both domains. There's a business expression, we don't tend to manage what we don't reliably measure, right? But the same is true in medicine. Uh, we have vital signs. And the reason they're vital is they're critically important indicators of health status, both now and in the near term. So your blood pressure may not tell me you know, that you're gonna fall over today, but if it's chronically elevated, I know it's gonna hurt you. And if your heart rate is way too high or way too low, I, I know that it's going to hurt you. And, and on and on it goes, temperature, same thing. Some of them, you know, the, the implications are always immediate, but, but some of them, they're just important over time. Well, if diet is the single leading predictor variable for all-cause mortality, it deserves to be a vital sign. And, and it's not just me who's saying this. So the, the, the fact that diet is the single leading predictor of all-cause mortality was run up a, a, a high flagpole on August 26th of 2019. It was an op-ed that appeared in the New York Times by Darish Mozafarian, who's Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, and uh, Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture. More recently, there was a position statement by the American Heart Association published in circulation saying that diet is so important to cardiovascular medicine that we need to assess diet with every patient which yeah. by the way, you know, it's, it, it, it's a rounding error. The, 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 
number of patients who have their diet formally assessed now. It should be done with every patient in clinical medicine. So anybody who's concerned about their heart should have their diet assessed, meaning their diet type, their nutrient intake levels, their diet, their diet quality objectively measured. And they went on to say, and we need a tool that can do that. Why do we need a tool? Well, because the traditional methods are a food frequency questionnaire where for the next 90 minutes, until your eyeballs catch fire, you're filling out little ovals that ask you, Vikram, you know, how many times in the past six months did you eat pasta? And by the way, what kind of pasta? And by the way, how much each time? And by the way, what went over it? And by the way, how much of that? And you have yeah. no hope of remembering all that. And you have to do that for every food under the sun. Or I can ask you, what is everything you ate yesterday? Let's start with breakfast and go through the day. And that, so the first method is a semi-quantitative food frequency questionnaire, horrible. Um, it works, but it's you know, incredibly painful. The second is a 24-hour recall, and they're only reliable if we do three days independently. So on three different days, I have to ask you to record everything you ate yesterday. Mm -hmm. Also works, but you know, quite severely yep. limited, um, both subject to the, the failings of, of human recollection. And then the third option, which is probably the most onerous of all, is, okay, I don't want to count on your faulty memory, so write down everything you eat for the next week. Now, all of these methods require a lot of your time, uh, lean heavily on your patience and forbearance, and then produce a result that first needs to be transmitted to some health professional via the web or by some other means, usually a dietitian, to be analyzed at the end of one level. And we've estimated that the average cost of that just in dollars for the professional, forget about the value attached to your time, that gets discounted, but for the professional to do the analysis, 80 to $120. Well, you can certainly see why that's not ever going to happen with every clinical encounter. It, it's, you know, it's absolutely absurd. So they argue we need new tools. Well, diet ID is the new tool. So as I described it, you know, again, we channel the Ferropter, we channel Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. We've invented a method that reverse engineers dietary assessment. Instead of asking you to try and badly remember your diet one food at a time, We've created a comprehensive library of dietary prototypes that represent what do people in the United States actually eat, diet type by diet quality. And then we show you these fully assembled images that represent these dietary prototypes. And we're looking for goodness of fit. Which one is most like stuff you eat? That one, okay, that one, okay, that one, okay, that one, okay, that one, that one, I'm doubling down, it's that one, we're done. Now we just have to right size it for you by asking you your age, sex, height, weight, and activity level. Run that through something called the Mifflin St. Gior equation, calculate your calorie needs, we're done. And then that same innovation, and, and I was privileged to work with a who's who in nutrition in the development of this. Uh, Walter Willett, who's chair of nutrition at Harvard, uh, or was, um, Frank Hugh, who replaced him as chair of nutrition at Harvard, David Jenkins, who invented the glycemic index, just an incredible group of luminaries helped us develop this over the past five years before we started to commercialize it. Uh, but it's, it's a digital, um, it's a SaaS business, it's a web app. You interact with this on any screen and we can comprehensively assess your diet in under 60 seconds. And that, and, and the, the analysis of course is infinitely scalable because it's fully automated. All of the critical data are stored in our database. We, we have 150 nutrient levels yep. for, for you know, every, every reported dietary pattern we can report back out to you. And then we can use the same IP to generate a personalized goal diet 
to plot the route from where you are personally to where you want to go personally. So you have a you know typical American diet, quality level three, and you want an optimal Mediterranean diet. We can map the route from here to there. And then we have a behavioral navigation platform that digitally coaches you there step-by-step, step, just like a GPS turn list. Got it. And that's the overview. And people can learn more at dietid.com. So the objective is to help individuals rather than helping a medical professional assess someone with more insight into what may be driving their conditions. Rather the latter in the sense that we're a B2B company. So we are licensing to, so yes, our, our goal absolutely is to help the individuals improve their diets, but the way individual, we're not in the app store. Uh, yep. We think this ought to be managed in the context of, of some, you know, more in-depth, um, enlightened view of what nutrition is for. So we're licensing into health systems. We're licensing into worksite wellness programs. So, you know, for example, Spectrum Health is a client of ours. Kaiser Permanente is a client of ours. The U.S. House of Representatives has 4,000 people working for them. And their employee wellness program is a client of ours. Um, Nature's Bounty is a client of ours. They're the biggest uh, dietary supplement maker in the United States. And what they're using us for is to personalize nutrient supplementation. So it's not random. Hmm. In other words, in 60 seconds in a digital interface, we can say, here are the nutrients you're getting from food. It's interesting. You think about the term nutrient supplement, it begs the question, supplemental to what? Well, we've never answered that question because we never had the means before, but the answer is obvious, supplemental to the nutrients you're getting from food. Well, we can provide that information in 60 easy seconds. Yeah. So now you can say, okay, so here are the gaps your personal diet is leaving behind. These are the supplements that make sense for you. It's, it's personalized. Yeah. Um, so we are, we're a B2B company, but our, our goal absolutely is to help individuals who receive this via all these different platforms. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I want to change gears for a second. Um, something that, you know, I've done these webinars now for, for going on six months with a whole bunch of uh, really different people. And the feedback I received from the first 10 this spring was, we loved one question, Vikram, that you kept asking your guests. So please ask it to everyone. And so I'm going to ask it to you, which is, uh, what's your favorite book uh, or your favorite movie? Uh, what do you recommend people read or watch? My favorite book, it'd be tough um, because it, you know, it sort of depends on uh, the mood that is being uh, addressed or assuaged, but, <laughs> but I'm going to go with The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Um, Dawkins, and, and frankly, you know, I've read everything that he's written. So Dawkins, um, he's an evolutionary biologist, a zoologist, but you know, I think directly germane to your mission, Vikram, for many years before he retired, he was the Charles Simonyi Endowed Chair for the Public Understanding of Science at yeah. Oxford University. So, you know, arguably the greatest bastion of, of academic erudition yeah. on the planet, the Endowed Chair for the Public Understanding of Science. Uh, you know, I mean, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And, yeah. and you know, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely brilliant at it. Uh, and the, the use of analogy and metaphor to help people understand complex concepts in, in evolutionary biology. But The Selfish Gene was his inaugural book. And you know, with that one book and, and his clear-minded thinking on the topic, he irrevocably altered our understanding of natural selection and, and evolutionary biology. And there are reverberations of the, the lessons and messages in that book into every aspect of life. So I, mm -hmm. I, I would have to put at the very top of my list, The Selfish Gene. Right. 
Um, in terms of movies, uh, I'm gonna go another way and kind of look at the overlap between what I think is profound and what I think is also great fun um, yeah. and go with James Cameron's Avatar. Okay. You know, it's just, you know, it, it, it's an incredible adventure film. Oh. The uh, special effects are awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting to spend time on Pandora, you know, where mountains float is, is just incredible. Yeah. Um, but it obviously, you know, has really important messages. And it's just, it's incredible how in the context of a movie, you can so readily wind up rooting against your own species as the bad guy, right? I mean, you know, something we'd have such a hard time recognizing if we were trying to persuade one another, you know, human beings are wrecking the planet. And of course we are, but you, you know, you watch this adventure film, you get drawn into the lives of individual characters. There's, there's no way you watch Avatar and, and, you're, and you're rooting for the humans, sure. right? Well, you know, that's pretty profound. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, you know, Cameron's talking about the plight of earth. And so it takes place on Pandora, but uh, you know, it, it's happening here. And, and so, you know, I think it's great in every way that's important. So I'd put that right. at the top of my movie list. <laughs> those are just some fun questions. I like yeah, yeah. there every now and then people tend to enjoy those. So, uh, but let's go back to, to obviously health and food, et cetera. Do you have thoughts on the idea of recommended daily allowances or these my plate what used to be the my pyramid i mean one of the things that i did appreciate about sort of what i've read of yours is it tends to be more than just food it tends to be the context of it is sort of the holistic uh, a little bit of that blue zone logic which is you know it depends on you it's personalized at some level it's context-based um you know there are constraints financial otherwise that may sort of drive a equitable uh, distribution that may be different than the recommended distribution or what have you. So what is your view on sort of public policy when it comes to diet insofar as there is one? So it may not shock you, you know, just like when we're talking about disease care or healthcare, and I argue that both have their place. And similarly here, both have their place. It, one of the things that troubles me about modern society is how excessively individualistic we are so that you know this is driven by the internet age and the fact that we got cookies for everything we do and the result is we're being tracked all the time and you know we get curated ads for stuff we're interested in buying or not interested in buying but we get suckered into buying and you know on and on it goes right so the, the result of all of that is success on the commercial side but also the notion that everything about me is special and I don't want to see generic. Everything should be personalized, customized. And when we talk about diet, don't talk to me about dietary guidelines for mm -hmm. Americans. You know, don't, don't genericize me that way. I am me. I am special. There must be the me diet. And I am inclined, you know, I, I react to that. Well, kind of like I did in this book, right. With the, the, the panda on the cover, right. You know, we don't need the genomic profile of every giant panda to know that they should eat bamboo. We just need to know they're giant pandas and dolphins should eat fish and koala bears should eat eucalyptus leaves and lions should eat meat and on and on it goes. So we are a kind of animal and we are more alike than different. And we need to start there and, and we need the humility to start there. You know, again, there's a lot about homo sapiens that makes us think we are a departure from all the rest of life. And we're really not a part of a continuum. Another one of Dawkins 
key messages. He, he argues against speciesism. He thinks that's the, the last bastion uh, of politically correct bias, uh, you know, the thinking that humans are so fundamentally different from all of life. And I, I really don't think we are. And so as a kind of animal, you begin by noting, well, what are we adapted to eat? What are the basic parameters that surround that? And absolutely, we can issue guidelines to Americans or frankly to humans, dietary guidelines for humans. And I've done this many times. Again, I've written multiple editions of a leading nutrition textbook working on one right now, the next edition. Um, in 2014, I published a commission paper in Annual Review of Public Health entitled, Can We Say What Diet is Best for Health? And my answer was both yes and no. If we mean the general theme of optimal eating for our kind of animal, absolutely yes. And it, and it really is, as Michael Pollan said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So an abundance of unprocessed fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, plain water for thirst. But if we mean any one specific variant on the theme, then the answer is no. And here's where there absolutely is opportunity for personalization. So you're right, not everybody needs the same exact nutrient intake level. Those are population averages. Not everybody needs to eat the exact same kind of diet either. But we start, I think, by recognizing we're more alike than different. We're a kind of animal. And if we get the fundamentals right, we'll be well ahead of the game. Now, within that context, we can personalize. And by the way, that, that, that's the exact approach that diet ID powers. So again, in our diet map, we, we have 10 tiers of quality for every kind of diet. In other words, if you want to eat paleo, we say, fine, we'll show you the optimal version of a paleo diet. If right. you want to be vegan, we'll show you the optimal version of vegan. If you want Mediterranean, pescatarian, flexitarian, et cetera, et cetera. We, you know, we're agnostic but high quality is high quality. A diet that's good for you and better for the planet just is what it is. It's not debatable, but which variant on that theme you think is best for you and your family absolutely is debatable. And only you really can make that decision. So you're the boss. So I think we can, if you will, have that cake and eat it too, right? The, the cake, the well-baked cake is the fundamentals of healthy eating. That's true for all of us as the same kind of animal but the icing is the personalization. And I think that can make all the difference in terms of, are you actually willing to do this? Sure, sure. So um, we have a lot of questions and I'm realizing we're running out of time because I'm <laughs> running most of the questions. So let me ask a couple of questions that have come in. First one is, um, you know, it's a three-part question. I'll just read them to you if we can go quick with the answers, David, then I'll get to the other questions. All right, what does a typical food day look like for you? Uh, it's 3 p.m. and the Halloween candy is staring at me in the office. What do I do choose instead that will satisfy the craving? And I love pasta. It's almost like a confession here. Uh, what do I do about this? <laughs> so a typical food day for me, I, I practice just what I preach, you know, my breakfast, uh, and I tend to do two meals a day and, and snack on fruit or something if I need something in between, but um, mixed berries whenever I can get them, otherwise fruit and season, whole grain cereal, um, with or without a little bit of almond milk would be my typical breakfast. Um, dinner, vegan more often than not, always a very large mixed green salad, uh, usually beans or lentils as a protein source, sometimes whole grain bread to accompany that, uh, sometimes quinoa, sometimes bulgur wheat. Um, my wife's a fabulous cook, soups, stews, um, sometimes homemade breads, and you get the general idea. I like good wine to pair with it as well. Um, occasionally fish and seafood, and occasionally when my wife's cooking, there's dairy in the mix. I, I usually don't use it otherwise. So predominantly vegan and, and just what you'd expect. Um, the, the Halloween candy at the office, you know, my advice has always been you need a food umbrella. And what I mean by that is 
you know, you don't go out in the rain and just hope to stay dry, right? If you go out in the rain and don't have an umbrella, your head's going to get wet. So you actively protect yourself. Same with exposure to the food environment. If you go out into a food environment, whether it's Halloween or any other time of year, and you're exposed to tempting food you really don't want to be eating, you're going to be hungry and you're going to eat it. So the analog to an umbrella for food is a snack pack where you put in things that you actually do want to eat. So, you know, maybe it's raw almonds or maybe it's fresh fruit or dried fruit or veggies or hummus or, you know, whatever it is, you decide, you're the boss. But something that you really would prefer to be eating to Halloween candy. Uh, and that will be your defense against that. So think in terms of a food umbrella, take matters into your own hands and, you know, think of the food environment and defending yourself against bad weather, just the way you do against the rain. Uh, I happen to love pasta too. Pasta is really interesting. Um, the extrusion process for pasta actually alters the glycemic index and load in ways that make it very different from bread. So much lower glycemic effects of pasta than bread. And my personal recommendation is learn to love whole grain pasta. I much prefer it. So, you know, it, it kind of like anything, you know, milk chocolate, if you eat milk chocolate and you taste dark chocolate, it tastes a little bitter. Get used to dark chocolate as, as I have. I much prefer it. I don't like milk chocolate anymore. Too sweet. Yeah. Oops. Uh-oh. Looks like we got, sorry, David, you froze for a second there. Am I back? You're back. Sorry okay. about that. I was just saying, um, you know, I've eaten pretty much nothing but uh, whole grain pasta for, for years. I much prefer it. It's flavorful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find that regular pasta now is really too bland. And then, you know, whole grain pasta, it, it's a whole grain. So, you know, the, the, the ingredients can be as short as whole grain semolina, semolina wheat and water. Um, so it's a minimally processed, very nutritious food with a very small environmental footprint. Um, so, uh, you, you confess to me and, and I can, you know, absolve you of, of any nutrition. So I'm going to ask one last question just to, so we can wrap up here and let you go off, uh, to the other tasks you have here today, David, but, uh, what do you think about toxicity in plants and what would be the best plants to eat? I mean, I, I think it's overblown and, and, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, pesticide and herbicide residues because your produce isn't organic, or if you're talking about the argument made by Gundry in the plant paradox, simple fact is that, you know, you, you could argue that the atmosphere is toxic because oxygen actually is toxic, right? So oxidation, you've all heard that term. Well, that comes from oxygen. So the oxygen in the area is toxic. You breathe too much of it. It ravages your cells. It, it Oxygen does to our bodies what it does to iron. It rusts us, basically. That's oxidative injury. But so what? Are you going to hold your breath? Uh, the toxicity of not breathing vastly outweighs the toxicity of the oxygen in the atmosphere. Same is true of plants. Sure, there are anti-nutrients in plants and there are potential toxins in plants, but the net effect of eating the whole plant is massive health benefit, not harm. Yeah. And so, you know, essentially the theoretical harm of the part should not displace the actual good of the whole. That's just, that's a logical absurdity. You eat more beans, lentils, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. Your health is almost certainly going to improve. Every population around the world ever studied masses of scientific evidence favor plant predominant diets. These studies are not adjusted for the presence of anti-nutrients in the foods. It's the net effect of the whole food that matters. Are there some foods that should be cooked to, you know, denature the lectins, for example? Yeah, but, you know, who eats raw pinto beans to begin with, right? Sure. So, you know, in, in, I think in practical terms, it, it's, it's sure. largely moot, um, and there's no particular 
plant that I take off the menu. On the other hand, and, and Bikram, we were talking about you before we started uh, recording, you know, if, if you personally have food sensitivities, that then obviously there are certain plants you may need to avoid because they bother you. So for example, you know, if you're gluten sensitive, you can't eat anything that contains gluten, but you know, that, that if you're allergic to peanuts, you can't eat peanuts. Sure. But you know, that's not because of a, a, a toxin per se, it's because you can't tolerate that food. Um, so allowance has to be made for that. Sure, no, that's wonderful. David, we have tons of questions. I have tons more questions, whether it's about COVID and whether what's happening in the diet there, some public health questions. We got questions about amount of protein or carnivores. So part two on another day, huh? We could go on and on, but what I want to do is actually thank you. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, for those paying attention and watching uh, or on the recording, really one of my favorite books when it comes to nutrition, quick, useful, concise. And I think that last part about the, the research logic is among the more thoughtful pieces I've read uh, that'll help you navigate all of this expert opinion that comes at you from all walks of life. Uh, really a wonderful book. So thank you, David. Thank you for writing it. And, and thank you for sharing your time with us today. I appreciate the really kind words about the book, Vikram, and pleasure being with you today. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.